Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Not an emergency podcast, but we're going to bring back, back Dan Weber since our emergency podcast on Sunday on the drive down. It's a little hard to hear. We apologize for that. We recorded that one in the car, but we wanted to get Dan back on. There's a lot of questions you guys have sent in for Dan. Dan Weber, USCfootball.com, calling us the beat writer. The Todd McNair stuff, the Sark lawsuit. There's never a dull moment here at USC, as you guys know. So we're going to try to get to all of those topics and try to answer all of your questions. If you have a question, send it in, podcast at uscfootball.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 641-715-3900, extension 816-646, excuse me there. Uh, you can also go to our website, peristylepodcast.com, click on the left side of the page, you can leave a voicemail. Try to keep the voicemails under a minute, or we're not going to play them. Um, definitely keep them under a minute, I should say, because we won't play them otherwise. Uh, iTunes.com slash podcast is a way to... Uh, subscribe to the podcast and of course leave us some positive feedback and let's bring in the man of the hour dan weber he's been busy we've all been busy we've not slept very much what's up dan how are you doing oh um uh, pretty good uh typical you know uh dull week off uh with nothing going on so we can just sort of you know lie back and enjoy ourselves i guess right <laughs> yeah it was funny we dan and i drove back on sunday and all i wanted to do was take a nap because, you know, it's a long, we were like on the road for seven hours or something. And it was, you know, we worked late, got up early and, you know, hit the road. It was just like, man, I just want to take a nap. And of course, all the firings start happening. And that just, that really started a 24 hour span. And I just tweeted this because we talked about it, Dan. I think USC probably had more drama in 24 hours with four assistant coaches fired, uh, the, you know, Steve Sarkeesian lawsuit and then the Todd McNair suit all in like 24 hours probably more than any other program had like all year yeah you, you go on some of these national websites and they'll have like uh you know three or five top stories on the right hand side or up in the whatever <laughs> and three of them are usc stories and you think hell they're not even you know not going to a january 1st bowl game they're not you know in the playoffs and they're dominating the news which we always knew usc is capable of doing uh that's probably not you know any there's no news there, but uh, there it was again. I guess we knew we were in trouble when we got back. And we won't mention what kind of car we were driving in because I'm hearing that people are saying they're tired of hearing about uh, your car. So, uh, but as we were, uh, you know, uh, stopping at the uh, supercharger, which I won't mention what it is, what what kind of car it is involved with, <laughs> we knew they were already meeting at USC with the coaches. And you had a feeling, uh-oh, something is going to happen today. I mean, I, I talked about, I need to write a column that says something better happened today. Before we got, you know, back to L.A. and stopped, they had, something had already happened. So, you know, they were ahead of us. Uh, luckily, something happened on Sunday because it gave you time to, you know, do uh, to deal with the stuff that then happened on Monday. I mean, at least they spread it out you know, over uh, 24 hours instead of having it all come down on Monday. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was spread out over 24 hours. 
but the, and it was like I just had I had enough, and then the McNair thing uh, happens too. And maybe we should start off. I don't know. But maybe we should start off with the McNair thing. Um, it's I think. Let me dig up. We have we have so many questions here. I think there was one on the uh, the McNair thing. Yeah. So I guess we'll start with that, and then we'll kind of jump into some of the other um, topics. So this Peter and Fullerton said, I have a question for Dan regarding the Todd McNair ruling. It's great news that the court is allowing his suit to proceed, but this is uh, his suit for personal damages. It will probably be terrible PR for the NCAA. But what exactly does USC get out of it? Is USC waiting for this trial to run its course before pursuing its own action? At this point, what are the potential remedies USC can reasonably seek? Reinstatement of Reggie Bush's Heisman and National Championship. Thanks a lot for your hard work. I hope it's paying off. And the explosion of new subscribers, uh, Peter in Fullerton. Hey, uh, Peter, good, you know, good questions. Uh, the kind of questions USC should have answered three years ago when they got the ruling, uh, from Judge Schaller, uh, you know, about what the NCAA had done, the malice, the fact that, uh, uh, Todd McNair has a really good chance of, uh, you know, prevailing in the lawsuit against the NCAA, uh, revealing some of the uh, emails that showed, you know, where the NCAA was prejudiced and basically uh, predetermined a decision and had people involved in the decision who showed a great deal of malice to Todd McNair, doing things that he and his attorneys had no idea they were doing, got no chance to answer them. All of those things, I think, you know, are important and important for Todd. But I think what's most important is that the uh, California Court of Appeals connected what was done to Todd to what was done to USC and made it clear that, and, and people have argued this because the NCA changed the way they wrote the decision at the last minute to try to cover that up, uh, but they, they weren't really successful uh, when you read you know the entire decision against USC, that they basically framed Todd McNair in order to say USC knew about it, and then they could come down, you know, like a ton of bricks on USC. They had no no reason whatsoever and no uh, ability, uh, according to any of the NCAA rules, to come down on USC the way they did unless they could prove USC absolutely was part of the conspiracy, you know, to get money to Reggie and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's nice that the NCAA, you know, that the, uh, the court said basically the NCAA needed to do this, and in order to do this, they basically made up evidence and uh, and, and misled, uh, you know, everyone uh, in the uh, decision against USC that that was not a, you know, a correct decision, essentially, or that at least Todd McNair has every chance to prove, you know, what a miscarriage of justice that was and how the NCAA had, you know, defamed him and lied about him because they needed him to be guilty in order so they could take USC down. USC should have, at that point, uh, USC should have said, uh, taken the shower ruling and all the, at least that they knew then, and gone to the NCA and say, you've got a choice. You're going to give us back all of these things that won't cost you anything. Give us back the victory. Give us back as many of the scholarships as you could have gotten back three years ago. Give us back the national championship trophy. Uh, we're going to intervene with the Heisman Trust to get Reggie Heisman back. All of those things the NCAA could have done under uh, threat of USC will take it to the next level. For those who say, oh, that would have cost USC so much, 
there's a there is a person, a benefactor for USC, who absolutely told USC at the time, I will underwrite every single dollar that you spend suing the NCAA. So do not worry. If you have, a, you know, the feeling that, oh, we'll, it'll just be a threat because we really won't do it, I will underwrite all the legal expenses, this uh, benefactor said. And USC said, nah, we'll pay it We don't want to do that. We don't want to go there. Now, in the intervening time, USC tried a couple of times to get some of those things, but with no threat. They basically went hat in hand, and uh, the NCAA, you know, pretty much tossed Pat out onto the street in Indianapolis and said, get out of here. You know, now the NCAA caved to Miami, caved to Penn State, caved to everybody else who threatened them, caved to Ohio State. But when USC basically said, we're not going to do anything, we won't make life miserable for the NCAA, the NCAA said, fine, we're not giving you anything. Plus, they had more to cover up in the USC case. You would have had to threaten them in ways that they hadn't been threatened before because their conduct in the USC case is so outlandish. I mean, honestly, guys, I'd have always wished that somebody would have gone after the law licenses of all the law lawyers and law professors that were on that committee on infractions for unethical behavior. I know people say, you know, that's a good idea. That might be a little over the top, but I think that's the kind of thing that USC should have been threatening people with. But they didn't threaten them with anything. And uh, what did they get? They got nothing. Still, five years later, nothing from an organization. Now we know, without any doubt, framed USC in order to be able to take them down. And how many, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars do you think in damage to the brand and, and to the program? You know, could USC document if they wanted to? Uh, so uh, it's, it's a pretty sad, looking back on, on these five years, it's pretty sad. One of the things we can at least say is I think we got it right from day one. Yeah. In the first story, we were there. You know, we were at the missteps uh, on McNair, and we pointed out all of what the NCAA got wrong. And the same thing was pointed out by the uh, California Court of Appeals uh, yesterday. So five years later, what we said five years ago is exactly right and uh, holds up just as strong now, you know, as it did, you know, from then as it does now. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a weird perception out there. Like I did an interview with Fortune magazine yesterday and I had to write the guy back to correct the thing. He wrote he wrote recruiting violations for USC. And when I, I asked him, I told him about it. He said, well, he was thinking that there was recruiting for that he was recruited by an agent or a wannabe agent. And I'm, well, if you say recruiting violations, here's what it generally means. He goes, okay, that makes sense. So he had to change the story. And I had an Oklahoma fan tw- just tweeting me yesterday. Bush took, you know, it basically people, there's a perception that USC paid to get Reggie Bush to come to USC. And it's just funny because USC didn't fight it adamantly. That's really the perception out there right now. Well, and you could see why, because the people on the committee and all these other people, all these fans of other programs, they looked at USC's program under Pete and said, you know how much cheating we'd have to do to win that many straight games <laughs> to have a chance for a three-peat? We'd have to spend so much money buying players. They, know, I mean, and that's the problem. Everybody just assumed you had to be buying players. You yeah. couldn't be that good. And, it, you know, it was just one of those times where everything came together right in terms of the talent available, you know, in California mostly, in terms of Pete and um, how he approached it. 
it's just, you know, the fact that he comes in and just happens to have, you know, two seniors by the name of, you know, for the at least for his year that USC made it back, his second year, he has two seniors by the name of Carson Palmer and Troy Palomalis. I mean, how many guys, you know, are that fortunate to the, the job they, they walk into at a place like USC? Because guys like that just wait for somebody to come in and coach them up. And, uh, it, it, you know, it just happened. Everybody assumed that, you know, if Reggie's getting money, it was to come there because they think USC's maybe like a typical SEC school or Big 12 school that's really good. Uh, you know, Reggie, the only money that came Reggie's way was to try to influence him to leave USC. I mean, people, that's the one of all the points people will never, ever get. Yeah. Because that doesn't square with their understanding of their own program. You know, their own program, you know, when they talk about money for players, it isn't for players to leave. And it isn't from people that have nothing to do with the school which is, was the USC's case. So that made it really difficult for the NCAA because the people, you know, that were throwing money around, if they were, we still don't have proof of that, uh, that would really stand up in court, uh, had nothing to do with USC. They didn't care about USC being any good at all. At all. They were probably, in more, when you look at it, trying to damage USC. So for USC to be penalized for people who were trying to damage USC secretly and didn't want USC to know about it, Obviously, you wouldn't want USC to know about it if you're trying to do things that are going to hurt USC. So the idea that USC knew is just terribly serious, and the NCAA had to know it deep down. And they knew they were, you know, they thought they'd get away with it because nobody's ever taken them as far as Todd McNair has. This is the first time we've gotten to the, you know, revelations on the inside workings at the NCAA and how, how corrupt they are, how dishonest. They were, you know, how easily they lie. And, uh, you know, that's a great service to Todd McNair. You know, Todd McNair, I've said this before, USC should find a lifetime position for Todd McNair. He he deserves it. He's done more good for USC than uh, a whole lot of people who actually work for USC. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I forgot to mention at the top of the show, Michael Moline Real Estate is our sponsor for the Tuesday show. So he's a good friend of ours in Southern California. So if you need real estate help here, go to his website, michaelmalinerealestate.com. You can email him or you can give him a call if you want, 310-275-4688. So he's out of Beverly Hills, but he's all around Southern California. So if you need some help, definitely check him out. He's a good friend. Um, and we'll have more from him at the end of the show. And, Dan, before we jump into the all the other kind of news, we also had a question with Reggie Bush related while we were at the Pac-12 championship game because Reggie Bush was there. Um, so it's kind of all tied in with the McNair stuff. So I want to do this one first, then we'll kind of get into the rest of the stuff. Um, he said, uh, this is from Stephen Porter Ranch. And we also had Mike call in with a kind of longer voicemail, but along the same, uh, the same subject line. He said, the Pac-12 unveiled their all-century team earlier this week. No surprise with the dominance of USC among the selections. Uh, 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 I'm sorry. Appropriately, Reggie Bush was included as both a running back and a kick punt returner on the all-century team. While the conference didn't help out USC's cause during the NCAA debacle, they are all in with respect to Reggie Bush's phenomenal exploits on the field. It's ridiculous that the conference can include Reggie in this all-century recognition, and yet the university has to continue to disassociate itself uh, from him and cannot include evidence of his accomplishments on campus or at the Coliseum. 
In the light of what we now know about the NCAA witch hunt, when does this charade end? Thanks. Love all the work you do. Fight on, Stephen Porter Ranch. You know, I think it may already have, uh, and we just don't even realize it, although probably it would take some doing by USC to kind of formalize this. And, of course, they've done nothing in five years, so why would they? Why would we expect them to actually make a move? I mean, they have, over, you know, once or twice said something about they'd like to be able to bring Reggie back. And, you know, the concept of, you know, a lifetime ban, are you kidding me? I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous for a guy they really don't have any, uh, you know, evidence that he, he uh, any evidence that could really stand up in any kind of real scrutiny. You know, we're not going to, you know, say what did or didn't happen or how it happened. But, you know, they've got evidence on a lot of other people in the NCAA. They just passed. Uh, so I think it's interesting. Under the guidelines from the NCAA, USC would, I guess, have to disassociate itself from the honors for Reggie. And so I'm guessing, could USC say, uh, in Reggie's case, uh, we demand that the Pac-12 say that he's a part of the Pac-11 all-century team? Because we can't be there. We're USC. We're not allowed to be associated with Reggie. So why don't we just give him a def- different, different definition? He's a Pac-11 all-century team because <laughs> the 12th team, USC, isn't allowed to be there. The ridiculousness of that. Is by far is just so obvious. Uh, it was interesting. He was there, but they didn't announce him. But then they presented him, uh, and, and and none of their pre you know public admit you know that he was going to be uh, a part of the proceeding. So it was kind of still a little bit up in the air as to you know how uh, how it was going you know and what he was going to do. And we were all surprised to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one thing along those same lines, Dan, Mike, uh, in Texas wrote, he said, well, he called in a very long voicemail. Sorry, Mike, I can't play. It's too long, but he wanted to know basically, and I, I didn't really think about this very much and you might not have either. So we can just go over this quickly, but anyone on the PAC 12 all century team, you think got jobbed, like someone that should have been there or shouldn't have been there, anything like that. You know, I know USC had, um, had all five running backs. You know, so it's hard, but, you know, there were Heisman Trophy winners. Well, running backs, uh, I'm trying to think which, uh, a couple of Heisman Trophy winner running backs that didn't get one. Like Rashawn and, Salam um, from uh, Colorado. Carson Palmer. Yeah. Carson Palmer, a Heisman winning, uh, quarterback didn't make it. Uh, and, and yeah, I think some of them were influenced by, you know, their pro careers, but that probably benefited USC too. I mean, for example, uh, USC fans don't realize that, uh, you know, Anthony Munoz isn't on the USC All-American Walk of Fame, probably the, maybe the greatest offensive lineman, you know, in the history of football. But he was injured, you know, so much that, uh, you know, he, he became the absolute great, great, great player when he, uh, uh, when he got to the NFL. And so he's still, you know, on the team. So I think, I think that went both ways, but, uh, I thought it was a pretty, you know, when you look at, Think of there are 11 other schools, and they got 26 players, and USC got 24. That's pretty remarkable. I thought the panel was, I mean, that the panel voted all five running backs from USC. I mean, that's amazing, that kind of, you know, ability to just say, nope, those guys deserved it. Uh, because it's, it's, I mean, I don't know that there's another conference in America where you would have 
virtually half of the all all time you know all time football team from one school. I mean it's just so and that was reflected. So I'm I'm pretty good you know with the way uh, uh, the way that played out. Even though I think some of the guys got uh, more credit for their NFL careers than maybe their college careers, but uh, I thought it was it was pretty fair. All right. Um, okay, so we have a lot of questions about the the championship game and um, you know what's kind of been going on. I think some firing questions, but do you want to? Maybe we should mention the Sark lawsuit. <laughs> I guess. I mean, the next yeah. big topic. Um, you know, maybe share your thoughts on what you think. Uh, you know, went down with Sark filing the lawsuit and then USC having their response. And what I was interested in is the fact that. Let's take it, uh, you know, that Sark went 30 days to rehab. Um, this lawsuit was basically filed two weeks after he got out of rehab and had to be, uh, uh, I guess there's an, you have to file something with the EEOC first. And in order to, to get around that so you can go directly to the lawsuit, you got to do something else. So I'm thinking during rehab, Clark may have been thinking a lot about this uh, lawsuit. They tell, you know, say most people say it takes at least six months to get one of these going. So he wasn't messing around. He probably uh, now wished he might have picked another day for this to come out. Although I guess with TMZ, you know, you just, uh, you know, it happens when they get it. But uh, <clears throat> probably would have liked to have it on a day uh, when there wasn't quite as much news. Uh, but uh, still got plenty of coverage. I don't. I mean, it it reads like a fairy tale. Some of it in terms of those, uh, you know, who who were there and realized how many times Sark denied to us that he had a drinking problem. I mean, we, how many times we asked that question? And, no, I don't, I don't really think I do. Oh, I'll check, but I, I don't think I do. And clearly said that was the case after he came back from Seleucia Troy. I don't have a drinking problem, and I'm not drinking anymore. And then in the lawsuit, he says he started drinking more after he came back. And salute to Troy because of all the pressure. It's just is like, which is it? You know, are you not going to drink? And you're drinking more? And the idea that on that Sunday when it all ended for him, that the Notre Dame game, when they were, they had been off for two days after the, after the Washington game, which obviously wasn't, you know, the Thursday night game. And so he said, I wasn't drinking at all on Sunday morning when, when he, you know, when he couldn't continue the meetings and they had to take him home. He said that was just a hangover from the night before he had been drinking so much. Uh, and you think, wait a minute, you know, your team has just had this horrific loss and you're going to come back on Sunday morning and you're in no shape to do it. And then you say, well, I'll just, you know, put me, let me take some time off and somebody else will run the team and then I'll, I'll be back and I'll be ready to go. I just, you know, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, don't know all the disability laws in California and how that all works out. It just doesn't, you know, have the, you know, the ring to me like, uh, you know, yeah, okay, we can just, you know, no big deal. Um, in there, there were things like uh, saying that Pat Hayden fired him because of pressure from the board of trustees because they're demanding, you know, wins on the football. I mean, there are a whole lot of, I'd say a majority of the board of me- trustees members, I'm not sure they could find the Coliseum. I mean, <laughs> these are not people. This is not a board of trustees group. It's dominated by football people, for God's sakes. I mean, they, you know, the NCAA wouldn't have happened the way it did. It wouldn't have played out the way it did the last five years if the Board of Trustees cared a whit about football. Uh, so that seems 
kind of, you know, silly. And, and when he described the pressures of coaching at USC, where in order to be a coach at USC, the head coach, you've got to be on the road four or five days a week recruiting out of town. And then you're, uh, it's worse during the season. And I'm saying probably that's not even legal. I mean, I don't know, you know, you're allowed to be out of, you know, on the road that much. And you couldn't be the head coach if you're out of town that much. I mean, it's just, so there was stuff in that lawsuit that you just think, wow, uh, does anybody who wrote this thing up have any, you know, real understanding of how college football works? Yeah. If you're uh, an assistant coach, you can be on the road a lot, but not the head coach. And not that much. I mean, yeah, you know, not, not where at any time, you know, maybe that, you know, one little, you know, time in the spring or something, but other than that, you've got to coach the team. I mean, there's, you know, really a lot of stuff to do, you know, when you're, you know, when you're, you're here and coaching them that, but so you read it, you think, guys, come on, guys, you got to get a little more, you know, close to the actuality of what happened here. But, uh, you know, and I, I was just not, I mean, the idea that they brought in that little incident before Salute to Troy, where they have to mention, so it's just had two beers after practice, and um, he was with Mark Jackson and Clay Helton, and it, and it just says they put two beers out for each of them. Doesn't say Clay even drank them. I mean, we talked to the people on the uh, the 1965 team and the 1990 team were there for re- reunion and waiting for Sark to show up, uh, you know, before the uh, salute to Troy, which he didn't. But they said that Clay came over and was terrific. I mean, they all just thought, wow, he's handling this, you know, really, really well. What a great, you know, great performance by Clay Helton. But I just think to throw that in there, that was uh, that was a low blow, uh, you know, and it shouldn't have been in there. And uh, a cheap shot, and uh, one would hope Sark's better than that. But uh, you know, you read it and then you say, well, you know, obviously I'm guessing he read it. Uh, you don't want it to be like one of Charles Barkley's biography where he said he was misquoted uh, in his own, you know, bi- autobiography. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, Sark had to be the one who talked about that little incident and it shouldn't have been in there I mean, it just should not have been in there and um and and that's disappointing uh so you know we'll see how this plays out and one would think usc probably has to settle for something and one would think i guess that they're doing this means that usc has told them you know no at this point and that's always a good sign but you know how much usc uh you know, has, and, and now for those who say, gosh, you should have suspended him after salute to Troy and gotten him help right then, we're probably right. That's yeah. what should have happened. Yeah. And, More- uh, he shouldn't have been around for at least the next four. And then, you know, basically, uh, I think 30 days is really quick to, to get through one of those programs. And, uh, I could see why you would say, well, I don't want to do, you know, I, I'd be taking a chance. They might not let me come back. And they might not, but the team would have been far better off, I think, if they'd have made the switch in, you know, in August and, you know, given Clay a couple of weeks to get ready for the season and, you know, get ready for Stanford the first time anyway. Yeah. And Notre Dame the first time. And, um, uh, I think USC clearly would have been better off and, uh, you know, Clark wouldn't go with that. So when they tried, you know, to get him help, he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't interested in it. So. I don't know how that all plays out, but those are just kind of my my feelings about it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't know. My, a little phone malfunction here behind the computer. So, sorry about that. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, basically another big decision that was made by the administration that was probably would have been completely, if you do the complete opposite, it would have been a lot better. So that's we just that's been the theme over and over again. So let's jump into so those are you know some of the big topics. We also got the assistant coach firings, but I think we'll kind of work those in these questions because we have questions about the, you know, the team and and the coaching and all that kind of stuff. So we'll just go through these and uh, do our best to get to all your questions. We apologize, there's a lot to get to. Um, TJ wrote in. So I, I had a feeling this hiring came at a poor time. So he's talking about Clay Helton because that seems like ages ago, but that was really a big deal. Uh, the, the, uh, I felt Pat should have waited until at least after the Pac-12 championship game. Now it's looking like the best decision. Helton was completely outclassed by Shaw and how he was able to use uh, Christian McCaffrey any way he wanted against us. This team needs a culture change, and I feel like Pat and whoever is in charge of finding a new coach needed to go outside of the program to bring that culture here. I feel the Promote, I feel that promoting someone within the program only really works if the culture and identity is already set by the coach before, i.e. David Shaw at Stanford, Jimbo Fisher at FSU, Debo Swinney at Clemson. What are your thoughts? Can Clay get this done? It's asking a lot of someone to change the entire culture who's never been top dog before. Thanks, fight on from TJ. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, you point out Jimbo Fisher and Debo Swinney both, uh, you know, came up from, uh, you know, coordinators. So, uh, uh, and with not the, uh, you know, the kind of resume that would say, okay, they're going to, you know, and, and you can say, well, Florida State, you didn't have to change the culture. But Clemson, I think it kind of did. Uh, and so you never know. I, I don't think it's that cut and dry. Obviously, there, there are questions. I mean, let's face it, Clay, uh, you know, worked for Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian. And neither one of them got, got even close to how do you build a football program? How do you, how do you build a football program at USC? They really thought it was about them, you know, about how smart they could show everybody they were, how smart their plays were, how uh, how much they could, you know, how much they could use USC, the USC brand and history tradition to recruit. But it's a whole lot more than that, and you got to put together the right staff. And again, the question is, Clay hasn't ever done that. He hasn't hired or fired until Sunday, uh, but he got off to a you know, the right start uh, in terms of they had to do something and they had to do it right away if you saw the, you know, the Stanford game. I mean, I think it's unfair to say he was, you know, outclassed going against Shaw. I mean, come on. I mean, really, he started the Sunday of the Notre Dame game. So, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly one-on-one between uh, between Clay and Shaw. You know, the fact that whoever, you know, I mean, he had to pass on the defensive game plan, but the fact that Somebody at USC didn't think that maybe you should put, you know, special attention on, you know, number five on Christian McCaffrey. Wow. What? They just treated him like he was, you know, any old other running back that they played all year. Uh, that they didn't take any, you know, real chances. That they didn't go out there. They, they coach scared again. And, uh, you know, they got chewed up. And, uh, that, that can't be allowed to happen. Uh, you know, we don't have any, you know, a guarantee about how that's going to change under Clay. Uh, you know, I we like Clay. We like what he does. We like, you know, a lot of the things about how he talks about the program, how he understands uh, that you got to be physical. you got to bring physicality back. you got to win at the line of scrimmage and all that. I mean, you know, Thursday before the, you know, you know championship game, Clay saying it's going to be one in the trenches. And then the USC uh, defensive line just gets overwhelmed uh, you know, Stanford's got seven guys blocking three, and that was 
you have no chance. I mean, to act like you've got a chance when you're going to kind of line those guys up and just say good luck. And, um, and you got, you know, young linebackers that are kind of going to make tackles you know, eight yards down the field. That defensive game plan, you know, I'd have been screaming out of the booth next to us with that game plan. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess they're lucky that we weren't screaming in the press box where you're not allowed to scream. Uh, it was that bad. Again, you know, Clay had to sign off on it, but uh, he's got a lot to do. And uh, he was you know, trying to, you know, fill a lot of, you know, a lot of duties, I guess. And uh, you, you look at the, um, the disappointment, I think, was you're playing Stanford a second time. You know they've improved. You know, you know, in their, the previous couple of years, USC has stood Stanford off pretty well defensively. This year, you know, I mean, obviously, a year ago, Stanford shot themselves in the foot six times in the red zone. But the year before that, USC really, you know, hung in there and limited Stanford, uh, a better Stanford team probably than this team. And so for them to have two lay-down games where, you know, they give, you know, Stanford 41 points is uh, is really disappointing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we, we – We'll try to get through these all. I'll, I'll do my best. Sorry, everyone. There's uh, so much to talk about today on the show. Um, Julian had a question. It's playing in, uh, it's playing good in alternating quarters going to be the hallmark of the Helton era. It's been so far. Fight on whatever comes from Julian. Yeah, I think that he's got to really take a look at uh, eight straight games where they're trailing at the end of the first quarter. I think, I think there is no possibility that that's not related to the way they practice. They just have to, you know, and this has been a, been a problem with uh, Lane and a problem with Sark. And now obviously they started faster with Sark. They, they had a tendency to make bigger plays, but they were healthier. Uh, and as, as the wide receivers got banged up and slowed down, their ability to make those kinds of plays, uh, you know, kind of went by the wayside. And the fact that the, uh, you know, they wanted to run first and, and all of that, which is great. But, you know, you have so many penalties on the offensive line and first play of the game you know they jump and you're you know you're first and 15 or or they you know blow a blocking assignment you're second 11 uh they've got to really figure out how do we get you know around that and how do you not how do you look like they did the first half and come out the second half and get two quick touchdowns with two drives where they absolutely look like they, they completely knew what they were doing why don't they you know Nobody's got an answer. I mean, but they've got to figure that out. They can't keep playing like that. That's just that's unacceptable. And uh, I, I think it it is practice related. I think that was one of the great uh, things that Pete Carroll did. He was so far ahead of everybody else in college football in terms of the the pressure and the pace of practice that allowed them to be game tempo at practice without going too long, without you know incurring too many injuries, that they could carry over you know, the game and, and come out and play that way and with great confidence. And uh, right now this is not a USC team that plays with confidence. This is not a USC team that has a lot of trust in what they're doing and what their teammates are doing and what their coaches are doing. And you got to break through. And you got to – I mean, they want to be confident in Clay. Uh, he's got to figure out a way, uh, you know, in terms of the staff, in terms of, you know, how they redo the offense and the defense to win that, you know, confidence and trust back. Let's uh, move on. We have, let's see. Oh, we had a John John from Oakland had a voicemail, too, that was way too long. 
He said it was a disgusting performance, and he was talking about the coaches, not really the players. He hopes that Clay Helton can make some changes. Obviously, that that did happen. Uh, so, oh, appropriate for the bowl game to have Kessler. He wanted to know if it's appropriate for the bowl game to have Kessler play in the first half, and maybe Max Brown play in the, the third quarter, and Sam Darnold play in the fourth quarter. What are your thoughts on that? Well, no, Darnold. Darnold, no, no red shirt. Using up a red shirt for Darnold. Uh, but yeah, I think the Max Brown question is kind of an interesting question in terms of. Uh, I would say if you're going to play him, he plays in the first half sometime, you know, I don't know how you do that, but I don't think that would be wrong. Uh, but, uh, that, that's a, that's a difficult question. I, I don't have a really good answer. I think I'd be thinking about ways to, uh, to get Max in there in the first quarter or first half, excuse me. First half. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, we have a voicemail question. Let me play that. <laughs> yeah, this match is for Dan Weber. This is Eric from Long Beach. Got a question regarding a statement made by Mac Brown on ESPN regarding how deep and talented USC really is. So I know you guys keep it real, you and Ryan. Anyways, like your answer to this question, fight on and have a great holiday. Take care. So, did, uh, so we don't always get to hear the guys on ESPN during the game. So Mac, Mac Brown said, they were really talented and deep. Yeah, I guess, I guess there wasn't really a question. Talented, more talent, or they're they're more talented than a lot of teams, and they're deeper than they than USC has been. Uh, whether they're talented enough or deep enough, uh, I think is is the question. Uh, when you watch, you can look at if you put you know uh, all the uh, stars on the field in terms of recruits when you lined up USC and. and um, Stanford, USC would have the star. USC would win the star battle uh, by far. Uh, if you think USC won any other battle, uh, you know you weren't watching the game. Yeah, they almost won the third quarter battle, but did not. <laughs> right. Now there, there's always something, but yeah. Uh, so it's really not about you know. So what does it mean when you say they've got talent? The talent is is that the talent when they recruited them? Is it the talent that's been developed? Is it the talent of playing together? Uh, uh, you know, that's the question. So I think you've got to define talent. I know we used to talk to John Baxter when he was coaching at USC, and if you ever used the word talent, he just started screaming because he's like, what does that mean? You know, talent is you're as good as you play. You know, don't talk to me about talent. It, does, it doesn't really mean anything. Talent is how you play, and it, you know, in that game, Obviously, Stanford had by far the most talent on the field uh, and on the sidelines as well. Yeah. Let's go. Troy, 75, he said, one of the brilliant personnel decisions made by Lane Kiffin uh, a year ago, I don't think he means a year ago because that was a while ago, was moving uh, Rhett Ellison from tight end to fullback. With the, the, excuse me, with the departure of our two best fullbacks, actually the two only fullbacks, um, yeah. Do you think that a player, possibly from the defense, will be asked to play fullback? Specifically, I was wondering about Osa Messina or possibly Port Augustine. Huh. The Osa question might be interesting. I mean, he, he was a good offensive. I guess he played quarterback, didn't he, or tailback? I'm trying to remember now. Which I, I really I think he was more tailback. Porter played I I quarterback, yeah. Huh? Porter yeah, Augustine. Porter played. did, and so Osa, I think, was a tailback. And I was amazed at his natural offensive, you know, moves and ability. 
And uh, that's an interesting one. If, uh, you know, if you think that, you know, John Houston's, you know, going to come in, and depending on who else, uh, you know, the way to get maybe all that talent on the field, that's a thought. And uh, obviously that was by far the best single thing Lane Kiffin ever did that year of realizing that uh, if you got, you know, Matt, you got Matt Khalil on the line of scrimmage and you get Red Ellison to the point of attack, and, uh, you know, as an H-back moving him, uh, they just dominated. I mean, they were, I think, the best team in the country by the end of the year because people, college teams couldn't handle those two guys at the point of attack. There was nothing they could do. And uh, you'd like to see USC, if you're going to be a power, you know, run first team, that's a good way to do it. And uh, that's a good thought. I like it. Okay. Uh, John wrote in, uh, was the projector in the film room damaged during the celebration last Monday? <laughs> Why would coaches think a three-man front and two deep safeties would work against Stanford's offense? McCaffrey is amazing, but I refuse to believe he couldn't be stopped, especially when you consider the absence of alternatives for Stanford. Uh, this feels like a lame duck coaching staff. What do you expect practices and preparation to be like for the bowl game? Is everyone going through the motions now while they wait uh, for the new staff in spring practice? I think fair points. John. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it doesn't look like they're going to practice as many times as maybe they could. And I guess they really do want to, you know, get healed up, uh, get through finals, get all that taken care of. Uh, so other than getting ready for Wisconsin, are they going to be able to set the tone for this is how we're going to practice? And this, I'm not sure they're going to do enough of that. And I think, you know, they're, they got at least three practices in San Diego. So, uh, I think they're going to have to wait till spring or at least the winter workouts, um, you know, to kind of set this new tone with a new staff. But, uh, um, you know, I think they, it'd be interesting. I mean, it'd be interesting to see just by osmosis kind of knowing that changes are coming, um, how different they look in the, uh, in the Wisconsin game. I'm just hoping some of these guys are leaned down to the point where, you know, they, I mean, it's so impressive watching uh, Stanford come off the ball yeah. in, in unison and quickly and, uh, you know, with the kind of precision, that, you know, and the, the confidence. And then you see USC, and, and, you know, you got four or five guys in different stances, kind of going in different directions and, you know, looking around, and Cody's got to have eyes in the back of his head. And, uh, you know, that, that has to change. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that you know, the number one hire is the offensive line coach. They really have to get this right. They've had four and four years and, uh, that, that hasn't gotten them to where they, where they need to be. And if you're going to do what Clay says he's going to do, I don't think there's any more, you know, important hire than, than that guy. And they got to get, you know, they got to get it going and get it right. Uh, let's go to Clay in Seattle and, uh, Clay, actually, he's a, he listens to our Pac-12 podcast too, and he actually brought down a bunch of cupcakes uh, from Seattle, which was really cool. Uh, wow. I got to see, meet meet up with him in Hermosa. But he wrote in for the podcast. Uh, Dan, moving forward, Clay Helton needs to find an offensive coordinator who can really pump some life into the offense. Not Norm Chow, but someone like Norm Chow. Any thoughts or recommendations? What do you think of Jeff Tedford? Is he available? He actually is. He just got he left uh, his Canadian Football League job. Uh, maybe in concert with his old cow buddy, Clancy Pendergast, playing in Seattle. I've always liked uh, Jeff Tedford. You know, Clancy guy, uh, an offensive mind. Uh, uh, obviously, those cow teams could run the heck out of the ball. 
Uh, I don't know what he's actually what he's thinking about. I mean, the, you know, when he left the uh, Canadian Football League, it was to to explore you know other coaching opportunities, and one would think uh, he'd be exploring head coaching jobs first. But uh, uh, but I've always looked favorably on him. I, I think uh, you know his track record at Cal at the end. The recruiting kind of caught up with him. Uh, that's not going to be an issue at USC. He'd be somebody I'd, I'd certainly look at favorably, and uh, and that he was able to, you know, combine uh, power running uh, year after year after year with, uh, you know, obviously some great, great, you know, passes. So, uh, so he'd be uh, that's a good name. That is a good name. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. He uh, his name has come up for like head jobs too. Um, but yeah, he's no longer employed by the Canadian Football League. We'll see what happens there. David from behind the orange curtain. He said some of the fans seem to be dwindling. Uh, I'm sorry, dwindling, dwelling on the Coach Helton selection. I am all over the hyperbole. Move on already. I've not been a huge fan of Pat Hayden's work as an athletic director. However, it was his choice to make. Get over it. I'm ready to support the university team and head coach. I hope Clay Helton is really wise enough to take a hard and unbiased look at his assistant coaches. He obviously did. Um, hell, maybe even bring in a respected outside coach to do an independent review. Uh, someone without an agenda, just simple professional honesty. Can that be done within the NCAA's rules? Would the university even consider it? Uh, you have a guy who's never been a head coach and could use some mentoring, a voice above the fray. Also, between now and the Holiday Bowl, are there any players currently on the injury list that could come back and help beat Wisconsin? Fight on. Dave from behind the orange curtain. Well, I think Isaac Whitney would be one. I think um, Cleo Rogers and uh, and Leon McQuay are two others that were maybe available for emergency use. So, so I guess those three. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that uh, you know that they could break in there. I don't know Jordan Simmons. We see him. He looks like he's closer and closer to something, uh, and doesn't seem like that knee's blowing up on him. So, uh, so yeah, I think there are. You know, a few guys that, uh, that, that could make that move. Um, in terms of, I'm trying to think of his second question. Uh, boom, boom. Oh, but um, could you bring in someone like an outside? Well, I think that's a that's a really good idea. Uh, I, I think as long as they don't coach on the field, as long as they don't coach, you know, directly coach the players, uh, it can't be at practice. But yeah, you absolutely could bring in somebody, you know, to take a look at everything you're doing and, and I'm sure there are a lot of people like that available and uh I, I would think uh you know Clay might be able to bring his own dad in. Uh I think uh after talking to him after the Colorado game I guess it was, uh he's an impressive guy and he's he's coached everywhere at every level, head, you know, an assistant in the NFL and big time college and he was, you know, a great player at the University of Florida and um I I was uh it wouldn't you know call it nepotism or not i i don't think it would be uh you know the worst thing to bring in people like that to take a look at every uh you know aspect of, of the u.s the situation right now because they do need some things um you know they, they need guys to they need guys to get stronger to get quicker to get leaner a couple of guys to get bigger uh they need to figure out how to do that and uh, uh that's got to be uh you know, really important you know in terms of uh, do they do they start using the uh, uh, virtual reality stuff? You know that Stanford now supposedly is making available to everybody in the Pac-12. I know they've looked, they talked to those people, and they've looked at it. Uh, 
not that Stanford needed it even a lick for Saturday's game. I mean, all you got to do is turn around and hand the ball to Christian McCaffrey. You really didn't need your uh, quarterback to make many, uh, many spatial judgments, uh, you know, from the you know, the rest of reality stuff. You just, uh, you know, it couldn't have been any easier. Uh, I mean, I thought the, you know, the worst part of that game plan in terms of the Christmas McCaffrey stuff was not only they overpower guys at the line of scrimmage, but you now you've given Christian McCaffrey three or four steps where nobody's even touched him. And maybe somebody gets a fingernail on his helmet, you know, after he gets two, two steps across the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's just absolute pattern for disaster. I mean, you can't allow him, you know, to get that running head start uh, past the line of scrimmage, and yet play after play after play, USC did just that. And, you know, just sat there and, you know, kind of caught him and hopefully, you know, could drag him down by the ankles or something. That was I mean, it's just amazing that they went into that game with that game plan. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, that's what Matt's question was. I'll read you what his thoughts and maybe you could uh, share some more. He said, it appeared to me, that last night, the best player on the Stanford team was being covered by Elijah Tucker on a passing play. I assume this because he was the closest when number five caught the ball and then ran down the field for about 50 yards. That was after number five hit, uh, had 93 yards in the first quarter alone. It seems pretty obvious that we always need to know where number five was at all times. Then in the third quarter, USC decided not to cover him at all out of the backfield. At that point, he had about 300 total yards for the game. How is that possible? Maybe this is some trick defensive scheme that I'm not smart enough to understand. Please explain it uh, to a really slow, stupid person like myself, Matt from Woodland. Well, with those two characteristics, uh, you may be either able to uh, play linebacker for USC or uh, do the game plan. Uh, slow and stupid it was. Uh, and that that's that's wrong. I mean, Elijah Wood Tucker in no way should have been having to you know, check uh, uh, Christian McCaffrey down the field. Uh, you know, should they have spied him? Maybe, uh, you know, said to, uh, you know, Sue Cravens, you, you got, you know, we're going to play man. You you got, you know, number five. And just stay with him, whatever he does. You know, if he runs it, tackle him. If he, uh, you know, releases out of the backfield, go get him. And make Stanford beat you with, uh, you know, Hogan's legs or Hooper, the tight end, and just say, you know, you would think that one of the ways you might go into that game is saying, whatever we're going to do, we're going to take Christian McCaffrey out of the game. We're not going to let him beat us. We're going to do what USC says Stanford does to their two-minute offense, where they say, well, they won't let us throw the ball down the field, so we just have to throw it three or four yards. You know, that's just not fair, but they won't let us. Well, why didn't USC try to say, I'm not going to let you beat us with Christian McCaffrey. Whatever you have to do, that's not happening. And it didn't look like you know, they had any plan uh, to stop Christian McCaffrey. And how is that possible? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't know. Uh, let's see. We got a few more. Tony from Norwalk. What do you think about Coach Helton reaching out to Clancy Pendergast, uh, Ed Ordron, and uh, Kennedy Palomalo to come back? Do you consider these guys top-tier assistant coaches? I'm going to assume that Coach Helton didn't get a big money contract, which leaves a lot of money on the table to bring in some really good top-notch assistants. Thanks, thanks you guys, and fight on, Tony and Norwalk. Yeah, I would check all those guys out. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy for people to say, you know, get out of your comfort zone and no more, you know, USC inbred and all that kind of stuff. But, 
each of those guys, you know, did some really, really good things. Um, a couple of them worked really well together. Three, I think all of them did. Um, uh, I know UCLA has been saying that they're, you know, at least their fans are worried about losing Kennedy. Uh, you know, there were, you know, some things involved in his leaving that, you know, have to get, have to get cleared up and same thing with Ed. But, um, um, yeah, I would, I would check everything out in terms of how do you configure a staff and, and how do you, you know, I think there, there may be, you know, some sharing in terms of the offensive coordinator's duties, uh, the recruiting coordinator's duties, special teams, uh, you know, coordinator, all of those things. I think all of the pieces are going to have to fit together. And, uh, so I think, you know, there's going to have to be kind of a balancing act in, in terms of how this all works out. But, uh, I think one of the ways you can, you know, make that work is you check everything out. You, you make all the calls. You, you know, consider all the possibilities and you say, you know, let's configure this in the way that, you know, does the absolute most good for USC and not just write people off just because they were here before or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, the fact that they were here before should be a plus in terms of you really do know about them. Now, obviously, that's not always the case. They didn't know about Tark. Uh, so, um, you know, you can't just say it's automatically, you know, a good thing, but, uh, I would, uh, I would, I would be favorably disposed to checking every one of those guys you mentioned out. All right. Let's move on to Tarion. He says, first, Ryan and Dan, you were real warriors doing the emergency podcast on the freeway. We so much appreciate the dedication you guys and other members of the staff have in bringing us news and information. Well, thanks. And again, sorry for the audio quality on that um, emergency podcast. Question for you both is, given the terrible coaching and performance of the team in the Stanford and Oregon games that you observed and reported, and given that Coach Helton was in charge, how do both of you feel about Helton's chances of turning the program around? Should we have expected better results at Oregon and Stanford, or was the situation he inherited too difficult for him to have made meaningful changes this season? Dan, you profoundly stated, right now, all we have is hope. So realizing that the die is cast and Helton is our coach, how much hope should we have? Right on from Tarion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hope is good if you've got a real plan to go with it. Uh, and that we'll see. We'll see how that develops. I mean, uh, there's no question Clay wants to do the right thing. Now, I mean, and I used to notice this, so many college basketball coaches. Uh, as you come up covering Kentucky and, you know, growing up in Kentucky, you really pay a lot of attention to basketball, college basketball. And it always became clear the more you got to know people that some guys could really coach basketball and some guys couldn't. And they it didn't matter what program they were at. There are certain, certain things that you get if you're a great coach that you might not even be able to quantify, but there's a getting it factor in being a great coach. And you don't even, you know, know exactly, you know, why, you know, Tom Izzo at Michigan State, you know, such a great coach in basketball or, you know, the, the other handful of, you know, really great college basketball coaches. It's just somehow they see the game and can translate their vision to the way their team plays when, it, when they're really up against it. And that's what has to happen in college football. And, uh, and we don't know that. We can't know that. Uh, and we will know that. Uh, but, uh, I think hope is a good place to start. And now we'll see how, you know, is that 
you know, as they say, you know, hope's not a, hope's not a plan. Right. So how does the plan play out? Um, we'll see. They've, they've got enough, I think, to be really pretty darn good next year without bringing anybody in this year who has to contribute. I mean, I think there's enough talent uh, on this team, if handled right, um, that they've got a chance. So we'll see, you know, if, if they handle it right. But it's, it's really hard to say this is what he has to do or this is what he has to do. There are a lot of different ways to get there, uh, none of which they seem to have discovered except for that second half of the 2011 season in the last basically six years, I guess, you know, counting Pete's last year. It just hasn't been here. Uh, you know, how long does it take? I think you've got to consider this year as Clay's first year, and I don't think it's wrong to say you either get it going by your second year, by the end of your second year, or you may not get it going. So I think there's an awful lot riding on uh, how does he handle, uh, you know, the off season, you know, the spring ball, summer, and where are they next year? I mean, it's a, it's kind of a tough schedule. They've got, um, you know, obviously the Alabama game added to the Notre Dame game, but if you, uh, you know, they've got, um, I think this is the year they go five uh, Pac-12 road games. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge, and they, they've got to be ready for it. But I think they potentially bring back more talent, for whatever that's worth, than anybody in the league. And if you could win the Pac-12, you've got a heck of a shot to be in the playoffs other than this year. I'm not sure Pac-12 gets, uh, you know, shut out two years in a row. And, uh, and, and you go from there. I mean, he's got a chance to set a tone. And to make the whole world kind of say, wow, they're back, you know, they're going in the right direction or this, you know, they've made the turnaround, but he, now he's got to do it. Yeah. Uh, we got two more and we'll let you go, Dan. Uh, Justin, the OC said, uh, we had, so he's talking about Steve Mason. He was on our podcast last week. Said so Steve Mason mentioned that people confuse the issue and think that Pat Hayden hired Lane Kiffin when he didn't. I've been told, uh, repeatedly by people that I would consider to be quote unquote in the know. That even though Mike Garrett was still there for another couple of days or weeks after Lane Kiffin was hired, that Pat Hayden did, in fact, make that hire, knowing full well uh, that he was going to be the AD that was going to have to deal with it. Is my understanding incorrect? And I do feel like Pat Hayden is going to be leaving USC in the AD role here shortly. But I don't get the impression that there is anyone other than Pat Hayden that was behind this decision to hire Clay Helton. Is that an accurate take? Thanks for all your insights. Love the show. Uh, Justin in Orange County. Sounds like Justin should read the War Room, Dan. I think you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I would think Hap um, uh, was involved in the uh, uh, Lane Kiffin hiring. I don't think there's any question that he was on this board of trustees at the time, but he was the football expert, and I think uh, you know he passed on it. I mean, he didn't say no, uh, and so uh, uh, you know. I don't know that the hiring of Lane. I think it was for the wrong reasons, but they had you know they were gonna you know, had the plan, and they were going to, you know, uh, appeal the NCAA's ruling, so that would give them the chance to recruit that 35-man class or whatever that year. And that was a good idea. I mean, give Lane credit for that, That and whoever else, you know, went along with that. But uh, uh, but I think, you know, the failing in the Lane Kiffin situation was the uh, inability after the Sun Bowl to say, that's enough, uh, we got to go our separate ways, and uh, and they – they weren't willing to do that, and that was on pack, you know, for sure. So uh, uh, in terms of hiring Clay Helton, I would say Pat probably had a whole lot of help 
uh, on that one. Uh, I really think that he was maybe not the prime mover. I know they everybody liked Clay all the way through the process, but in terms of the timing and how it all you know came down and all that, I'm not sure who pulled the trigger on that one. That's that's kind of not what we're we're hearing that there were other people who decided how and when you know that was going to happen. And, and one of the ways it made it you know it would have been a lot more difficult to do that this week. So uh, uh, you know in some ways you can say well that was a good idea. If it doesn't work out, you're going to say wow that was not a good idea at all. So uh, but uh, so uh, I think you've got some of it right and maybe some of it not. Exactly, as we understand it. And we got one more for you, David in Orange County. I understand that Sua Cravens is almost a lock to go to the NFL next year, but he is most likely going to be a safety when he gets there. What if he moves to safety for a senior year and we recruit guys like Mike Juarez to replace him at linebacker along with Cam Smith and Osa Messina? Uh, what will this look like for next season? Would that be a dream, David in Orange County? But David, I think that would be my selling point. If I, you know, and I don't think it's up to the coach to try to sell a kid to stay when he could go and still, you know, get drafted, you know, fairly high and, uh, and do really well for himself. I might, you know, say to, you know, uh, Sua, hey, we're going to play a, you know, strong safety. We're going to play you a safety anyway. And we're going to do all the things with you that you're going to be doing in the NFL. And not because we're trying to cater to you, not because, uh, you know, we think this is the only way we're going to keep you, but we think it's the right thing to do on defense. We get more of our good players on the field. Uh, and say, if you have the kind of year we think you'll have at safety, you know, you'll be a first-team All-American and uh, a high first-round draft pick. And for that, we might be able to say, uh, Sua, this might not be a bad idea for you to do that. So, so I would think, I would probably guess that conversation might be uh, held and, uh, and you just have to wish Sua, you know, well, whatever he decides to do. But I don't think in his case it would hurt for him to have, uh, have a year playing safety and still in the NFL, you know, kind of a Troy Polamalu type safety. And again, you got to have a, the right defense coordinator to, to make that work. But, uh, but I, I think I might go for that. All right. Well, Dan, great stuff. We went a little over an hour. Um, there was just so many things to get to and hopefully you guys enjoyed this one. Uh, but really appreciate you coming on Dan and sharing all your insights. Thanks very much. And now, uh, got to go back and, uh, turn Fox news back to the long segment that they just did on Steve Sarkeesian's lawsuit. Oh, so, uh, go that's check been that out. Running while we're, while we're, while we're, uh, podcasting. So, uh, uh, USC's everywhere. Fox news, uh, <laughs> jumped all over this, uh, Steve Sarkeesian lawsuit. And uh, all of that. But had the sound down, so I don't know what they said. But uh, we'll have to see. All right. We'll go check it out. Thanks again. And everyone else, thanks for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. And here's a quick message from Michael Moline Real Estate. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate 
estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E, realestate.com. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.